This morning we're going to read from Numbers 11, verse 10 to 17. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you have put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? to the land you promised an oath to their ancestors. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring, my seven, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you, so that you will not have to carry it alone. Beauty. All right. Um, so good morning, St. Clair. Uh, my name is Mark Standish, and I've been going to St. Clair for about a year now, but I'm a bit of an introvert, um, and so you may not have met me yet. Um, so hello if you haven't met me. Um, and I'll tell you a few things, random things about me. Um, for what it's worth, I'm currently working on a PhD in philosophy, um, but I'll try to keep that in my back pocket. Um, it's kind of bubbling under the surface, but only under the surface, I promise. Um, I like sports. I play on an uh, Ultimate Frisbee team with many people in this congregation. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I love St. Clair. So today I'm going to talk about gifts. More to the point, I'm going to unpack how and why God gives gifts. Similarly, I'm going to unpack how God wants us to receive gifts. And here's my thought. God gives and receives gifts as expressions of love in a relationship. He doesn't give gifts as exchanges. He doesn't expect his back to be scratched just because he scratched ours. I'm going to start with a short story from my childhood and then bring Moses into the picture. And a few more things about my sermon before we get started. It's centered around three miraculous meals. So I'll start with the manna and meat in the wilderness of Numbers 11. Then I will look at Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 in Mark. And finally, I'll end with the Lord's Supper in Luke. So as promised, I'll start with a story. When I was a kid in grades 9 and 10, I had a friend named Derek. Derek's parents had more money than mine, and they were more willing to give Derek what he wanted. Being Derek's friend, I was quick to sleep over at his house and play Age of Empires or Magic the Gathering or whatever else we were into at the time. And he was a pretty generous person. He often gave me his old Magic cards or his hockey cards or whatever else we were into. And as a 14-year-old, I was pretty oblivious about why Derek gave me these things. But more on that later. 
At some point, my friends and I got into a routine. After school, eight to ten of us would congregate at my house and play basketball. For reasons I didn't really understand, hosting began to wear on me. One day, I just wanted to be alone, so I locked all the doors, closed the blinds, and pretended like I wasn't home. When my friends got to my place, they didn't buy it for a second. So they continued to knock on my door and look through my window, calling out to me. At one point, Derek called through my window, something to the effect of, Come on, man. You, can, you come over all the time, and I give you tons of stuff, and you won't even let us in? Pretty unremarkable story, right? Yet, there's something subtle in what Derek said and did that indicates what he expected in return for his gifts. We were convenient friends. We liked the same things, we had similar friends, and his parents enjoyed chatting with mine. So the gifts served a pragmatic purpose. Those gifts were an attempt to bind us together in friendship. Once in friendship, gifts of that kind were expected. Repayment was expected. Using my house to host him was expected, apparently. Now, what does this have to do with Numbers 11 and Moses? Numbers 11 is basically, put very shortly, Israel complaining. And who wants to read about complaining? But today, we're going to find goodness in reading about complaining, I assure you. So, Israel complains after God gives them manna in the wilderness. The manna is a gift from God, just like the magic cards were a gift from Derek. So, why does God give it? How is it to be received? These are the questions I want to zero in on as we look deeper into the text. But before we get into the specifics, let's quickly read the beginning of the chapter. So this is uh, chapter 11, starting at verse 1 this time, which wasn't actually on the screen beforehand. Now, when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire abated. So that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. The rabble among them had a strong craving. And the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt. For nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Skipping down to verse 10, which we just read, but I'll redo it because it's so good. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, all at the entrances of their tents. Then the Lord became very angry, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you treated your servants so badly? Why have I not found favor in your sight? that you lay the burden of all this people on me. Did I conceive this people? Did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where am I going to get this meat? (laughs) For they come weeping to me and say, give us meat to eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone, for they are too heavy for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, put me to death at once, if I have found favor in your sight. 
and do not let me see my, my misery. So, Moses and the Israelites are in the wilderness longing for the land they've been promised. Since Moses brought the Ten Commandments down to the people at Sinai, he's pretty much taken on the entire burden of communicating with God for the Israelites. After a while, the Israelites grow impatient and complain to Moses that God is not providing for them. So here's the pattern that the Israelites' complaints in the wilderness take. God gives a gift. The Israelites are satisfied for a moment, and after their satisfaction wears off, they complain to Moses that God has wronged them. God then grows angry with the Israelites. Just as he is on the verge of punishing the Israelites, Moses intervenes, relays Israelites' complaints, and persuades God to withhold his anger. God then addresses the Israelites' concerns with more gifts. At first, these passages are puzzling. Why is God so angry? The Israelites are in the desert, so of course they're going to complain. Plus, why does God need Moses to convince him to hold his punches in the first place? Why are Moses' complaints effective while Israel's complaints fall on deaf ears? Normally, I simply gloss over these questions by crudely concluding that the Israelites are complaining and God doesn't like complaining. Which makes some sense, until you realize that Moses is complaining too. If God really had a problem with complaining, then God would have had a problem with Moses. So maybe the problem doesn't lie in complaining itself, but in a certain type of complaining. For example, Chapter 11 begins with the Israelites complaining according to their typical pattern. The people complain about the wilderness. The Lord hears their complaints and grows angry. He decides to burn the outside of the camp. Then Moses complains on behalf of the people, and God stops his destruction. On the other hand, in verses 11 to 14, Moses complains to God in an entirely different manner. He launches into a long tirade about how he can't take it any longer. God doesn't give his people what they want, that is, meat to eat, and therefore it falls on Moses to mitigate Israel's anger. And Moses concludes, I am not able to carry this people all alone, for they are too heavy for me. So God responded to Israel's complaints with anger. Therefore, Moses' complaints at the end of the chapter should lead to God's anger, right? Except they don't. They lead to God's sympathy. God hears Moses' complaints and devises a plan to lighten his burden. So to recap, when Israel complains, God destroys stuff. When Moses complains, God goes to great lengths to address his concerns. Why? What's the difference? Here's what I think. There's a difference between the manner in which the Israelites complain and the manner in which Moses complains. When Moses brings his complaints to God, he is actually speaking to God. The Israelites, on the other hand, either complain to each other or to Moses. The Israelites rely on Moses' mediation for God to hear their complaints. The result is something similar to talking behind God's back. But you might object. Didn't God give Moses, and only Moses, the job of talking to the people and talking to God? Surely the Israelites can't be faulted because they weren't given the opportunity to interact directly with God, can they? 
To get further into this, let's look at Moses' complaints in more detail. So Moses complains that he has taken on too much of the Israelites' spiritual burden. God's response isn't to stop the Israelites from complaining or to give them what they want. Instead, God decides to redistribute the spiritual burden. God gets Moses to gather the elders around him and gives them the spirit. They begin to prophesy, and for a moment, they are doing Moses' work. But then, they stop. The text says, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. Immediately after that, the scripture states that there were two more people still prophesying, Eldad and Medad. They were prophesying outside of the camp, and therefore people started to notice them. At one point, a young man informs Moses of Eldad and Medad, and Moses doesn't react. He just continues on with his business. Then the son of Moses' assistant pipes up, yelling, My Lord, Moses, stop them! Moses responds, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now, for those of us readers of Numbers, this comes as no surprise, because we're privy to Moses' previous conversation. Moses wants the elders to take on some of the burden, because he can no longer bear it himself. In this portion of text, we can see the burden he's under too. The man comes to him and calls him Lord. So first, Moses just wants to do the bidding of God. And then suddenly he's being treated as the ruler of the Israelites? This is not what he wanted. As we read in verse 30, Moses wants all the Lord's people to communicate with God. And for that matter, so does God. Recall Moses' whole ordeal receiving the commandments at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. God's original attention was for Israel to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. To be a priest is to have an opportunity to enter into the presence of God. But when it came time to hear from God at Mount Sinai, the people did not go up the mountain to hear from God. Instead, they put that burden squarely on Moses' shoulders. Now, it's true that God commanded that the people should not touch the mountain, but God specifies in Exodus 19.14, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. When the trumpet blast ran out, though, the Israelites were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance. They told Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. So when God wishes to interact with his entire people, the Israelites become afraid and give up the opportunity for direct communication with God. Yes, it's true here. Moses is special and has a special role. But he wasn't supposed to be the only priest in Israel. Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. In this way, the burden on Moses is tremendous. The nation of Israel depends on one man to communicate with God. What if he mishears? What if God tells the people something that angers them? Who's going to hear about it? Who's going to bear the brunt of their anger? It's all on Moses. And it was the Israelites, not God, who gave him this burden. So let's get back to complaining. At Sinai, 
Israel did not answer God's call. He wanted to meet God, wanted to meet with his people. Instead, he only met with Moses. Then, God gives the Israelites a series of gifts to help them survive in the wilderness, including manna that fell from the sky. And the, the people complain, not to God's face, but each other and their go-between man, Moses. They treat God like a self-checkout, expecting God to give them what they want without actually having to interact with a person, which I really like self-checkouts because I'm an introvert, so I feel guilty. But anyways, moving on. When Moses complains to God, he does so person to person, and God has compassion on him. When Israel complains, they do so without regard for God, and God feels slighted and is angry. With this in mind, we can start to make sense of the odd series of events that conclude the chapter. The people are fed up with the same thing for every meal. They ask for meat. Moses complains to God, and God responds, saying he will give the Israelites meat to eat for a whole month. Moses is shocked. He says, are there enough flocks and herds to slaughter for them? Are there enough fish in the sea to catch for them? After Moses finishes this statement, the scene shifts to the elders' failure to continue to prophesy. Then the scene shifts again. God gives them a feast of meat. But Numbers says, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Why is God so angry again? It doesn't seem like Israel did anything to deserve this plague. All they did was collect the gift that God had given them. It was for them, wasn't it? Remember, though, that the people failed to enter into relationship with God. They wanted lavish food and weren't willing to ask God for it themselves. Viewed from another perspective, you could ask, Israel wasn't satisfied with manna from the sky, and yet they had the gall to ask for meat? They had the gall to ask for meat when they weren't even willing to communicate with God, the giver of gifts. Surely, though, God did not want this plague for his people when he saved them from Egypt or when he promised them a land of milk and honey. How would this whole thing have gone if the people actually had a relationship with God? Would it have been any different? At this point, let's take a moment and take stock of where we've come, because I've kind of circled around a few things. So this is what I've done. First, I hinted that there was a difference between the complaints of Israel and the complaints of Moses, which is why God reacted so differently to each party. Second, I outlined that Moses was communicating with God directly, which prompted God to have compassion on him. Third, I showed that God wanted all of his people to directly communicate with him. And fourth, I described the plague at the end of Numbers 11, which is an example of a gift given outside of a relationship. In Mark 8, we find a strikingly similar story, a story in which Jesus gives a gift within a relationship. Jesus was preaching to a large crowd of about 4,000 people. They listened to him for three days and were without food. Jesus was concerned for their health on their journey home. but They were in the desert, and the disciples argued that there wasn't nearly enough food to feed 4,000 people. Remember, side note, 
Remember Moses complaining to God there weren't enough herds or fish in the sea for 6,000 people? Just keep that in the back of your brain. Just like the miracle of the meat and the manna before it, God provided his people, provided for his people when such provision did not seem possible. So Jesus takes the seven loaves available, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they distributed them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered that these two should be distributed. Obviously, the outcome of this incident and the meat miracle in Numbers differ significantly. Most obviously, there's no plague in Mark 8. Also, the people didn't complain or demand for food. They didn't need to. They were face-to-face with Jesus. He knew their needs. Instead of feeling unsatisfied with the gift that Jesus gave them, Mark notes that they ate and were filled. They ate what Jesus gave them without looking for some tastier alternative. So in these parable, in parallel miracles, God feeds his people. In one case, however, God's miracle turns into a plague because the people he is feeding do not know him and haven't made any attempt to start to know him. They take his gift, but do not enter into relationship with him. In the feeding of the 4,000, the people are already in, in a relationship with Jesus. They're with him for three days. Jesus' gift flows out of him as an expression of the relationship he has with those people. Jesus responds to the crowd's hunger in the same way that God responds to Moses' plea for help. He has compassion and enacts a plan to fix the problem. Therefore, in the story of the feeding of the 4,000, Mark gives us an alternative to the meat miracle. The feeding of the 4,000 is not an exchange of services. It is instead a gift given out of Jesus' compassion. And Jesus' compassion is stirred because he is with the people. They are grateful for the gift. Now, Jesus breaks bread with almost identical words in the Lord's Supper. Luke says that on the night before he was crucified, Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. In the Lord's Supper, we come upon another miraculous meal. Luke connects this meal to the feeding of the 4,000 by describing Jesus' bread-breaking rituals in similar terms. In the feeding of the 4,000, Mark says, Jesus took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the people. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes the loaf, gives thanks, and then breaks it, and then gives it to the people. There is a difference between the two meals, however. In the Lord's Supper, the loaf of bread takes on a new significance. Jesus Jesus says, the loaf is my body, which is given for you. The bread becomes a symbol of Jesus' body, which he asks his disciples and us to take and eat. He asks them to put his gift, his body, into our bodies. In this way, Jesus' ultimate gift cannot be received without receiving Jesus as well. The person and the gift are inseparable. 
And in a way, all genuine gifts operate in this fashion. When we give gifts, we are giving something of ourselves, which is why we're so scared of giving genuine gifts. Just like the Israelites on Mount Sinai are scared of risking themselves in encountering God, we are afraid to make ourselves vulnerable by risking a part of ourselves by giving gifts. We're afraid that not only our gift will be rejected, but that our self will be rejected in the process. So let's look back at the Israelites in Numbers 11. Why does God get so angry when Israel complains behind his back? Why does God plague Israel for eating the meat? I think it's because when the Israelites complain behind God's back, they aren't just rejecting God's gift. As they reject God's gift, they reject God himself. If they, like Moses, responded to God personally, God might not feel so rejected. If they argued to God that they needed more, they would have entered into relationship with God, which is what he's been longing for the whole time. Think about Jesus the night before he was going to die. He's in Gethsemane, and what's he doing? What's he doing? He's complaining. In prayer to God, he is asking for his cup to be taken away. It doesn't end up happening, but um, you can see that even the person, the Son of God, has this relationship with God that is, can bring his complaints forward to God, and God loves that. So this sermon isn't about accepting your lot. It isn't about asking for too much. Instead, it's about where you go when you need more, when what you have isn't enough. God wants us to bring our complaints to him. When we see injustice in our lives and others' lives, he wants us to fight against it. He doesn't want us just to accept that people aren't grateful enough or that people haven't been stewarding their gifts well enough. He wants us to fight against that injustice, but fight with him, as opposed to against him. What if we keep our complaints outside of relationship with God, just like the Israelites? Will we, too, find ourselves plagued as we wallow in our own self-pity? I think the answer is yes and no. Obviously, our, flu- our food won't be plagued, probably. But there is a subtler, more insidious plague that follows such self-pity. That plague is bitterness. When we allow our entitlement to reject God, the bitterness that stews against God colors everything. So I'll close with another story from my adolescence. Grade 12 was one of the darkest years of my life. Uncertain about my future, grade 12 started with a bang. A breakup, of course. I'm a person who likes to be able to see things coming, and I didn't see it coming. Then, after three years of getting by in high school without much effort, I decided it was time to try. After all, I had to get into university programs that I wanted. Despite my best efforts, and for reasons I didn't quite understand, my grades didn't get better. They got worse. Then, it turned out that the person who broke up with me started dating one of my best friends. So, I became infuriated with God. I didn't doubt that he existed. 
I just stewed in bitterness because he didn't do what I thought was best for me. And I couldn't understand why. Isn't God supposed to be for me? The bitterness that I felt colored everything and everyone. No one was for me. No one really saw me. And if they did, they had some agenda. Bitterness led me to feel like anything I was working towards in my life really didn't matter. What mattered was that I did the things that I liked, the things that made me feel good. Taking such a selfish perspective into the year, it is no surprise that I hurt other people. I didn't even notice that I was doing it. Bitterness had blocked out of my vision everything that didn't serve my purposes. Eventually, I found myself at a camp at the end of the summer. It was time to take communion, and the preacher asked us to forgive anyone in the room we had sinned against. This one person, whom I hadn't spoken to in a couple of years, kept coming to mind. I kept thinking how strange it was that she was coming to mind. I had talked behind her back a couple times, sure, but was that really my most egregious sin? Anyways, I went up to her and asked forgiveness. And that bitterness which had clouded everything began to break. I began to take people at their word, instead of assuming they had ulterior motives. I began to take God at his word, too. I began to believe that I was useful to him. I began to believe that I was loved, that he had my best in mind. Most of all, I realized that I wasn't the only person involved in all of these events. These events weren't coordinated against me. Yes, they sucked, but God wasn't out to get me. Neither were the people who hurt me. It wasn't that God wanted me to accept being single and alone all my life. He didn't want me to accept that I was too dumb to go to university. He just wanted me to tell me, he just wanted me to tell him that I felt those things. Instead, I let those things drive a wedge between God and me. See, it's not that God just wants us to accept what we have and be quiet. He wants to be involved. He wants to give us what we truly desire. He wants to hear our complaints when they don't make any sense. He wants to hear us vent. He wants to be with us. Most of all, he wants to give gifts to us. And in doing so, he wants to give himself to us. Uh, Mark's going to close with a benediction. I don't normally do this. Uh, it's twice in one morning. But um, I was reflecting on what uh, Mark was saying this morning. And I think one of the antidotes to complaining is actually thankfulness. And as we stood there and we're just worshipping away, I was looking around, which I know you're not really meant to do in worship, but I was. And I was actually struck by how thankful I am for each of you and actually the gifts you bring to this community. Each week, this just doesn't magically appear. There's so many people who give their time and energy to make this happen. And also just to be here and be present is actually a gift. And so I wonder if as we move forward as a community, one of the ways we push back against a complaining culture is to be a thankful culture. So I just want to say this morning, I'm deeply thankful for this community and each of the gifts that you bring to the table. Mark, good segue, hey? So uh, you can receive your benediction as you feel you like. So, as you go, St. Clair, may God bless you and keep you. May he have compassion on you and give you many gifts. May you have eyes to see the gifts around you. And may you, St. Clair, draw near to him as he beckons you home. Amen.